Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Jerry Smith, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Good, good. Glad to have you on. Uh, Jerry is the author of Schooling the Prophet, How the Book of Mormon Influenced Joseph Smith in the Early Restoration. Uh, Jerry, I'm grateful to have the chance to sit down and talk with you. I wonder if you could maybe just start us off by giving the listeners a brief bio about yourself, and uh, and then we'll go from there. Thank you, Bill, and it's good to be with you and your listeners. Um, I am... Uh... I'm a professor at Boston College in Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, and actually came to Boston in 1975, uh, just shortly after my mission. I spent my mission in the New England mission and then came to Boston. So I've spent my entire professional life and church life here in Boston. It has been great. Uh, Boston is a great uh a great cultural area, lots of universities, lots of great thinking. Um, I, I went to school at Brandeis University, a Jewish university here in Boston, then did my graduate work at Harvard Business School, and then my PhD at Boston University, and now I'm at Boston College. Um, I've been at Boston College for about 25 years. In fact, uh, this we had our graduation, our commencement ceremony, uh, maybe two weeks ago, and I sat uh, on the stage. I was one of those who read the names of the graduate, of all the graduates. And uh, I had sitting to my left a Catholic priest who was receiving his MBA that day. He gave the invocation. And I had sitting to my right a Catholic nun who was the former president of the American Management Association. She gave the um she gave the benediction did i get those right anyway each of them gave a prayer and uh i was truly moved by both of those prayers in fact i remember thinking to myself that 25 years ago when i came to boston college i didn't consider these people my people uh and i didn't consider these prayers my prayers but today you know 25 years later i definitely believe these people are my people and those prayers were my prayers, and I love them, and we just have a great relationship. So I'm an institute instructor here in Boston. I teach, uh, I have taught at the Harvard Business School, their institute class there, and then also at Harvard College. And then I've served in the church in many different capacities, three times as a bishop, and then once as a stake in the stake presidency, and then various other callings. Uh, and once as bishop of a singles ward, which I love, it was great fun. Um, and then, you know, outside of that, my children are all, almost all Easterners. We actually have a son and daughter-in-law and, and four grandchildren who live in St. George. Now they're moving to St. George, Utah. Um, and we have uh, then a daughter who lives in Washington, D.C., and another daughter and 
her husband, who also live in Washington, D.C., but both of them are moving back to Boston shortly, which we're excited about. So we're mostly an East Coast family, but that is sort of our background. That's beautiful. And uh, and I actually just moved to St. George a little over a year ago, and so maybe uh, maybe uh, me and, and your a uh, couple of your kids would get a chance to kind of rub elbows a little bit. Um, I do want to kind of jump into this idea of the book that you've written. And I had a good time kind of reading through this and making some mental notes of some things that I came across within it. But every book that gets written certainly starts off long before the the pen hits the paper. I I wonder what your thoughts were on, on how you, you know, what was the impetus for putting this book together? Where did these ideas begin to kind of um, stir around inside your mind? And, and what was the process of you kind of thinking this through and, and deciding that it was uh, this was a book that needed to be written. So in my life, because I've lived here in the East, and um, many many of my friends, of course, are from other faiths, uh, Catholics and Jews and Protestants, uh, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and so forth. Um, I've always been very interested and very um, curious, if you will, about uh, different faiths. And one of the questions that I've had as I've observed our own faith is uh, Mormonism. I've wondered what it was that led to the Mormonism that we have today. And one of the observations that I met, that I made just as I observed our church, was that I saw things in church that looked very close to the Book of Mormon, as if somehow the early leaders of the church, especially Joseph Smith, had uh, had seen things in the Book of Mormon and translated them through into church protocol and church procedure. And so certainly some of those things are fairly obvious, although that's not, not true. Not all members are familiar with this. But, for example, our sacrament prayers uh, come directly from Moroni, chapter 4 and 5. Um, and uh, baptism as a protocol comes from the Book of Mormon. So those things are kind of fairly well known and even easily visible just by reading the Book of Mormon. But there were other things as well that were, you know, not as clear. And yet I sort of observed these as I served um, as a bishop. I would, I was, I got especially close to the priests and teachers and the deacons and uh, watched how those roles worked. And I was curious how they worked and how they worked in the Book of Mormon and how they worked in the Old Testament, especially And there were parallels that I thought were fascinating. And I wondered, did Joseph Smith, as he began the restoration, did he consult these sources? And I know that there are many who believe that God revealed to Joseph Smith exactly what should be, that these are the offices that should be in the church or that this is the way baptism should be administered. I actually don't think that that's correct. I think that Joseph sought answers to these in the scriptures and even in other places, and that he would take those to the Lord and say, Lord, is this right? And I think that the Lord would say, yep, this is okay. You know, this is right. And I think that uh, they, so I think that Joseph was looking and casting about for those things. And I was very interested in where that came from. I took two ideas to a friend of mine, to Terrell Gibbons. Terrell is a great scholar on, uh, you know, on the Book of Mormon and otherwise in the church in general. And, uh, and I, so we were visiting with the Gibbons in Virginia and, uh, I said, showed two of these ideas to Terrell and Terrell said, I think you ought to do this one on, 
on the Book of Mormon's influence. And um, and Terrell, of course, has done great work on the Book of Mormon on this very issue. So he was really, you know, essentially saying, Jerry, see if you can take this and take it further, you know, sort of make this, uh, you know, make this another another step in our understanding of where the Book of Mormon was in in terms of its influence in the early restoration. So so I said, OK, I'll do that. I actually started researching this and uh, I said, I'm going to take the toughest test first, which I thought was the temple's influence and how Book of Mormon temple worship might have influenced modern temple worship. And after I had written three chapters, I showed those to Terrell and he said, Jerry, no publisher is going to accept a manuscript of over a 100,000 words if you were to project ahead what I had done. So I scaled my work back a little bit and just said, you know, I think there's enough here. I think that I'm going to proceed. And so that's what I did. And that's what the, that's the book we have before us now. Awesome. Awesome. I, uh, I had a chance to have dinner with Terrell and Fiona about a year ago and, and I see that they did the forward to the book as well, which is just, it's really great. And, and I want to touch on this idea that you spoke of, which, you know, as you kind of hint, uh, to, to the Book of Mormon, maybe as we kind of jump into some of these questions on what these connections are, I, I want to ask you why you think the Book of Mormon was such a touchstone and, and maybe also kind of offer a paradox. It, it seems like at least some of the articles I've written on early church, or not written, but read on early church history, have Joseph using the Book of Mormon in his actual sermons very, very little. But as you point out, he's certainly drawing on it. And so I wanted to ask you why you think maybe the Book of Mormon was such a touchstone for him as he develops uh, theological ideas, doctrinal ideas, but maybe perhaps at the same time doesn't seem to be using the book directly, like in, in sermons quoting it or, or using it within his teachings as direct words and quotes from the book, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um Terrell Gibbons made a really good point, and uh, and I wrote this in the book. I quoted it. Uh, he said that he noticed that after the Book of Mormon's publication, Joseph um, never quoted from it, as you said, uh, especially during the Nauvoo years. Um, he never quoted from it. And Terrell said this, it is as if, like a court stenographer, he felt the text flow through him without ever taking cognizant cognizance of it. Um, there's no evidence that he studied the Book of Mormon or even read it after its publication. I think I thought that that was very interesting. And so as I worked through this, um, I asked this question, is that true? Did he not really look at it? And I and I write in the book how um, how, in fact, uh, there are, you know, there are different ways of of a work or of somebody's work influencing you. Uh, for example, Beethoven uh, was obviously a great composer uh, between the classical and the romantic eras, and the the composers who came after him actually picked up his ideas and brought them into his symphonies, even if they didn't, you know, even if they didn't cite him or give him credit. And I think that Joseph did a similar kind of that kind of thing. Um, there's an interesting story. Let me just begin this question. Bill, with this uh, story, and I quote this in the book, um, Joseph Smith went to Washington, D.C. in 1840, and this was after the Missouri persecution, and he was trying to get redress from the Congress and from the president for the um, for their sufferings in Missouri, 
And so he was speaking to a group um, and and listened to how he took this, how he approached that. He quoted from the New Testament readily in his addresses. Now, this is written by somebody who was there, and it's not LDS. This is just one of these people who happened to write this in their diaries. He quotes from the New Testament readily in his addresses. He took good care as there was an intelligent congregation, including several members of Congress present, to say but little about the Book of Mormon. He averred, however, that nobody wrote it but him, and it contained nothing contrary to the Bible or its virtue. Notice what he does there. He holds the Book of Mormon up. He has it with him. It's right there. But he quotes from the New Testament. So he's trying to hold both volumes of Scripture up at the same time, Bible and Book of Mormon. He quotes from the New Testament because he knows that everybody in the audience will relate to the New Testament. He'd like to quote from the Book of Mormon, I think, but he can't because obviously people would think he was a fool, you know, that they would present, that he would present this new scripture there. So I think that Joseph Smith had to walk a very fine line with regard to the Book of Mormon. There's another dimension to this that's very interesting. When the Book of Mormon came out, it was called, it was framed as a new Bible as a gold Bible, as the Mormon Bible. And, you know, that was easy for people to sort of pick up on that and say, okay, it's a new Bible. But that also set up huge expectations like, are you kidding? This book is somehow equivalent to the Bible, the Bible that we know, that we go to church with, that we have known for thousands of years. You're saying that this Book of Mormon is equivalent to that? You know, that's a, that's a tall order to place on the Book of Mormon. And Joseph Smith knew that as he talked with these people in Washington. There was another dynamic, and that is that the LDS people knew the Bible and they loved the Bible. And so they quoted the Bible and they dealt with the Bible. And they didn't read the book. Well, did they read the Book of Mormon? Yes, but they didn't use it the same way that they did the Bible because they knew the Bible so well. Uh, There was work that was done by uh, one of our Mormon scholars who said that the LDS people quoted the Bible 20 times more than the Book of Mormon. And I think that that's true. So there's a great scripture, which I'm sure you're familiar with, in the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 84, verses 56 and 57. And it's one that I have heard for years and years and years. And, uh, and I could never figure it out until I worked on this book. This is the one where the Lord condemns the saints because they, uh, because they fail to remember the new covenant, even the Book of Mormon and the former commandments which I have given them. Not only to say, but to do. In other words, to follow the Book of Mormon. I could never figure that out. I, I wondered how that scripture got into the doctrine and covenants, but now I know I know that the Lord was, you know, was uh, uncomfortable with that. And frankly, Joseph was uncomfortable because Joseph was the prophet who received that revelation. And Joseph knew that he was doing this and that the rest of the church was doing it. But it was hard to push against the tide of the Bible. It was such a biblical religion. There's another interesting idea on this. We still have some of this going on today. I mean, Uh, In the church, we were a biblical church until 
1973, all of our missionary pedagogy was based on the Bible. When I went on my mission, I memorized a hundred scriptures and they were almost all Bible scriptures. A year after I had gotten into the mission field, they changed to a whole new program. And now we had 84 scriptures, most of which were Book of Mormon scriptures. That was a radical departure. And frankly, I thought it was crazy because, you know, who's going to listen to the Book of Mormon? But that is the approach that we've continued on. And it was, you know, and I think it's been an effective approach. Um, anyway, so, you know, I think that with Joseph Smith, it was a it was a tightrope to walk with regards to that. And, um, you know, you could you imagine if Mitt Romney had become president of the United States and he said, uh, you know, I'd like to do my swearing in uh, with my hand on a Book of Mormon. How do you think that would have played in the press? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. That would have been, it would have been one more thing for someone to, to essentially get upset about or, or to have all the common uh, commentary within the, within the news stations and certainly to be one of the top stories for at least a week. Uh, as people discuss back and forth whether that was the right thing to do or not. Yeah, so I think what Joseph did instead was he went to the Book of Mormon personally, and he read it and he reviewed it. And one of the reviewers of my book used a word that I loved. and She said that Joseph Smith was saturated with the Book of Mormon. And I think that's true. I think he had translated it. He had sifted through its words not only once through the translation, but again when they did the printer's manuscript, and then again as they did the, the third edition and the fourth, or the second edition and the third edition. And I think he went back to it a lot, and therefore, but he did it quietly and he did it privately, even though I think he was uncomfortable with that. I think he would have liked to have been public about it, but it was just too hard to do it, you know? Right, right. No, exactly. I, uh, one of the chapters you have in the book is where you talk about these connections, these dots uh, that are being connected from the Book of Mormon to Joseph's doctrine and theology. I wonder if you could just spend a, a minute or two and, and just talk about some of these specific. Uh, and again, don't we don't need to go through all of them because we want to obviously tease the listener and and have them check out the book. Again, we're talking with uh, Jerry Smith, uh, author of the book Schooling the Prophet. How the Book of Mormon influenced Joseph Smith in the early Restoration, uh, but talk for a moment about some of these dots that you see within doctrine and theology that are in the Book of Mormon, or at least at least the initial idea of them is, and and Joseph then is drawing them out into the doctrine and theology of the Restoration. Okay, I'll do that. Um, and as I do this, I mean I'm obviously highlighting the Book of Mormon and its influence, but that's not exclusive. That isn't the only influence on Joseph Smith, although I think it was very prominent early in his life as a prophet. But I think as time went on, the Bible became much more prominent uh, for sure. And part of that was because of Sidney Rigdon, frankly, because Sidney Rigdon was such a great Bible scholar. Um, but, uh, yeah, let me give you a couple of these. I mean, these are things that Mormons are perhaps familiar with, um, but uh, but nonetheless... We don't, I don't think that we know the provenance, if you know the word provenance, um, of where they came from. Um, for example, uh, one of the things that Joseph Smith did was after they had finished the Book of Mormon, after they had finished translating the Book of Mormon in June of 1829, and uh, Joseph had told Oliver, listen, I want you to put together a, you know, a set of procedures that we should use 
as we begin to sort of build up what is going to become a church, we think this is going to become a church. This is obviously before the the organization of the church in 1830. So Oliver Cowdery put together what I call the 1829 Articles of the Church of Christ. And, you know, as, as Oliver put these together, he really went to Joseph and said, Joseph, you know, where am I going to get these procedures from? Joseph went to the Lord, and the Lord came back to him in Revelation, which we find in section 18 of the LDS Doctrine and Covenants. And it essentially says, listen, I gave this to you already. You've received it. You've just spent, you know, the better part of two years going through it. That's where you need to begin. And so that's what Oliver did. He went to the Book of Mormon and used it literally as a procedure manual. That's where we find baptism. That's where we find the sacrament and so forth. So that was pretty obvious and pretty clear that Oliver did that. But there's another thing that is less clear and it's very interesting and it shows you how Joseph was really saturated by having read and been familiar with the Book of Mormon, he followed up the 1829 Articles of the Church of Christ with the 1830 Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ. And I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but the 1830 Articles and Covenants of the Church of Christ became Section 20 of the modern LDS Doctrine and Covenants. That is what I call and we call the Constitution of the Church, and it has all of the basic beliefs and basic procedures. It's where we talk about, you know, what priests do, what teachers do. It doesn't say what deacons do, even though it identifies deacons. There's an answer to that we'll talk about maybe later. But one of the things that he put in there is something that others at the time called the Mormon Creed. And this was a statement of belief about what the Mormons believed. And you can read this. It's in section 20 verses 17 through 28, and I'll just read a little bit of it to you and show you where the Book of Mormon's influence came in. Are you ready? Wherefore, by these things, we know that there is a God in heaven who is infinite and eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Let's just stop there for a second, okay? Uh, Wherefore, by these things, we know that there is a God. That phrase alone is found 12 times in the Book of Mormon, two times in the Old Testament, and nowhere else in Scripture. By the way, if you were to go and look at uh, the Book of Discipline by the Methodists, or go and look at other, uh, other documents or expressions of faith by other Protestant faiths, they don't talk about the existence of God. They talk about the Trinitarian nature of God. So it's funny that the Mormons start out with this existence of God, You know, here they've been living in upstate New York, which is the burned over district of Protestant, of Protestant religion, and they start out with saying that there is a God. Well, everybody knows that, but they, Joseph was using the Book of Mormon as a place to start with. And then he goes on, uh, who is maker of heaven and earth. That is once in the Old Testament, once in the Book of Mormon. So Joseph uses both the Old Testament and the Book of Mormon, I'm convinced. Uh, That God is an unchangeable God. That's only found in the Book of Mormon. Even though you'd think it would be elsewhere, it's only found in the Book of Mormon. He talks about, it, it talks about how God created man, male and female. That comes from the Old Testament. Uh, and in his own likeness and own image, um, that he gave his only begotten son, that comes from the New Testament. But then this, he says, that, um, 
that he, this is Christ, that he ascended into heaven to sit down on the right hand of the Father. So that's interesting. There are lots of places in the New Testament to talk about Jesus going to stand or sit on the right hand of God. But there's only one place in all of Scripture that says this. He ascended into heaven to sit down on the right hand of the Father. That's a long statement. And that's found only in Moroni chapter 7, verse 27. So it's only found in the Book of Mormon, you know. It is these kinds of things, as I sort of went through them. Here's another one that's really interesting. He talks about, um, this is again section 20. Um, we believe in the gifts and callings of God by the Holy Ghost, which beareth record of the Father and of the Son, which Father and Son and the Holy Ghost is one God, that Father and Son and the Holy Ghost is found once in the New Testament, 12 times in the Book of Mormon. So these are things that I think influence Joseph. And uh, in fact, as I did my analysis, 67% of the Mormon creed, I think, was sourced from the Book of Mormon, which means that the rest of it came from the Old Testament and from the New Testament, but clearly shows that Joseph was influenced by all three, but especially by the Book of Mormon. That's really interesting, Jerry, because as I pointed out earlier, I've I've kind of taken for granted this idea that Joseph just translates the Book of Mormon and then he just sets it off to the side and it it really doesn't help him frame his theology, uh, it doesn't really help him frame the doctrine of the church. But as you're pointing out, if if we just kind of open our ears in a new way to some of the things that are in the Book of Mormon and the, some of the things that we word within our theology, you can, as you're pointing out, see that the Book of Mormon certainly was influential on Joseph and on the early church which certainly goes through to today, which we'll jump into. I want to talk too. the the next section of your book uh, talks about rituals and, and you're trying to make the same kind of connection there. And obviously we've got, you know, baptism and confirmation. We've got the saving ordinances of the temple, but uh, maybe walk us through two or three of those as well, where maybe we've never really caught this before, but that there's things going on that the Book of Mormon certainly plays a part in influencing Joseph. Some of these are absolutely profound to me. Um, one of the things that I did in my book, when I wrote the book, I know that it sounds like I was writing it to a Mormon audience, but that's not true. I was writing it to certainly my Mormon friends, and uh, and that includes some who were in the faith or on the margin of the faith, but I was also writing to my non-Mormon friends, um, whom, by the way, I've given a copy of this book to, just as friends, one of them, a Catholic priest, reviewed the manuscript before I ever sent it off to the press to make sure that I had represented Catholicism correctly. He's a dear friend. I sing with him in the University Chorale. Uh, one of the things that I was interested in was the Eucharist versus the Sacrament of Mormonism. So the Eucharist of Catholicism, say, or the Eucharist of the Anglican religion or of the Lutheran religion, uh, how is that different from the Mormon sacrament? I've been to many Catholic masses, uh, funeral masses or masses just to go and be with my friends. And I've observed, and it is impressive to see what it is. And I studied it as part of the book right here. Did you know that in the Catholic mass, the Eucharist, which we would call the sacrament, the Eucharist takes up two-thirds of the mass, it is what I call a thematic crescendo. 
starting with starting with recited prayers and rituals. There is the offertory wherein the priest offers the emblems, meaning he presents the emblems of the sacrament at the altar. Then the then the consecration where the priest holds up the emblems of the Eucharist and there dedicates them and consecrates them. And it is at that moment that transubstantiation occurs, that the body that these that the host of the Eucharist become literally the body and blood of the Lord. And then the third part of the of the Eucharist is the communion where after after that great culmination of consecration, then we distribute it to everybody in the congregation. Two-thirds of the Mass is focused on leading up to the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And it is powerful. I wondered, why is that the case? And that is the case because as you read the New Testament, most of the New Testament account focuses on those events leading up to Gethsemane, Gethsemane, and then leading up to Golgotha and the crucifixion itself. So that is what my Catholic friends and my Protestant friends have used to build their Eucharist, and it's beautiful. What is the Mormon sacrament service like? It is so different, isn't it? Part of it, it's different partly because we are uh, we come from a frontier tradition, a low church tradition, if you will, whereas Catholic and Anglican is a high church tradition. But even beyond that, in Mormonism, there is no representation of the crucifixion or of the events leading to the crucifixion. There's no thematic crescendo. There are only two recited prayers. There are, there are word-perfect prayers, but that's it. There is no climatic moment of, of transubstantiation. There is no suffusive uh, symbol of the cross that, that the priest makes. It is just very simple. Those two simple prayers are what matter most. And as, as I looked at that, where did that come from? Certainly part of it came from, I'm convinced, from the Book of Mormon and the sacrament it was, as it was presented there. The Savior presented the sacrament um, on this day, the day when he arrived. The next day he presented it again. Uh, he presented it a couple of days later. You know, Jesus presented the sacrament. Jesus um, gave the sacrament, um, you know, not with great drama, but really with fairly simple procedure. And then I loved this, and this is an insight that came from John Welch, who was um, who was a professor at, Boston, at uh, BYU, and uh, in the New Testament, Jesus says, "Take eat. This is my body, which I have given for you." So it talks about Jesus giving his life. This is before, obviously, his resurrection. When he goes to the people in the Americas, now he comes to them as a resurrected person, and he shows them the wounds of his crucifixion. But that is the only discussion or the only point at which he talks about the crucifixion. All of the rest of it is the resurrection and the Savior presenting himself as a resurrected being. And this is what he says. He says, this is my body, which I have shown unto you. This is my body, which I have shown unto you, not given for you, but shown unto you. In other words, this is the resurrection. I am here. I live. 
So the people in the Book of Mormon really understood this very differently, and the people in the uh, and the people in the New Testament didn't appreciate, didn't have nearly the great emphasis that they did in the Book of Mormon on that. I thought that that was wonderful. There are 17,000 words of post-resurrection doctrine in the Book of Mormon, meaning Jesus speaking as a resurrected person, whereas in the New Testament, he left 3,600 words. So there's a great difference there. Do I have time to talk about baptism too, Bill? Yeah, please. I would love to hear another one. All right. Let me tell you about baptism because this is one that I really love. Um, Baptism is something that um, I, I had a fascinating experience. I was in my office at Boston College. The professor next to me is a devout Catholic, very devout, wonderful person. And she came into my office and she said, Jerry, why is it that Catholics don't recognize a Mormon's baptism, but they do recognize a Protestant's baptism? Baptism, And I said, what do you mean, Vicki? What are you talking about? And she said, well, she said, if a Lutheran wants to join Catholicism, they join Catholicism and they don't have to be baptized. But if a Mormon wants to be baptized, wants to join Catholicism, then they do have to be baptized all over again. I said, wow, I have never thought about this. This was 15 years ago. As part of the book here, I looked this up and went into it. And there was a great statement that was made by the Vatican in 2001. And the Vatican, it was absolutely true. They would not recognize Mormon baptism. And here was the reason, or one reason, there were two others, but this is one that I will highlight here. Um, In their Mormon understanding, baptism was not instituted by Christ, but by God, and began with Adam. Christ simply commanded the practice of this rite. So this this is the Vatican speaking here. But this was not an innovation. According to the New Testament, baptism was new. It was an innovation. Well, that's really interesting. I think that the Catholics are right. Uh, The Mormons actually don't believe that baptism began with Christ. This is one of the great things that Joseph saw from the Book of Mormon. Baptism is timeless. That is, it goes back to the very beginning of time, to Adam. In fact, there are 60 references in the Book of Mormon to baptism prior to the advent of Christ. Now, that's very simple, but it is so profound that in the modern day, Catholics and Protestants take notice of this and say, do you know what? Their baptism, as the Catholics said, their baptism is of a different matrix. They didn't say that it was heresy. They didn't say that it was wrong. It was a different baptism. And that's exactly what the Book of Mormon did for Joseph Smith It gave him a precedent, a protocol, but also a reasoning that that kind of expanded beyond what anybody had ever thought before. And I think that that kind of precedent enabled Joseph to, to produce a religion that was very compelling, even as other religions might struggle to differentiate. Here was Mormonism that had a belief that was so profound, true and different, that people had never considered before. So I thought that that was just an interesting thing. Uh, Let me add one more thing to that, by the way. If baptism is timeless, then is there evidence that baptism existed in Judaism? Maybe read the book and take a look at it. The answer is yes. Jews certainly practiced baptism before 
Jesus, and not only John the Baptist, but going well, bef- well before that in time, and in fact still do what we would not, they don't use the word baptism, but they certainly do washings, including for people who convert to Judaism. So, you know, this is something, I'll let you read about it, but it certainly has wonderful precedent archaeologically, precedent uh, religiously with the Jews in time. So anyway, those are interesting rituals. Yeah, it's, that's really neat. And and it's interesting as you talk about this idea that within Mormonism that these these ordinances, especially baptism for sure, go within our theology and the way we look at the Book of Mormon and the way we look at the storyline and this idea that these ordinances go long before Christ. And and I find it interesting how that's one of the reasons that the that the Catholicism rejects essentially the ordinances um, that we perform. But I want to hit too on the temple, which kind of is along the same lines in that that within our theology, we kind of leave this room that there's temple types of ideas that exist certainly before Christ. And obviously even Christianity would recognize that with Abraham and with, with Moses and the tabernacle out in the desert and with, uh, with, um, Solomon's temple. But within Mormonism, there's even this idea that maybe those kinds of things even go back further. Um, your thoughts too on the connections that are there in the temple as well that you see these dots being connected, that there's that there's temple theology or temple themes running through the Book of Mormon. Wow. Think about this. Uh, there's only one reference in the Book of Mormon. It's in 2 Nephi chapter 5 that talks about the construction of a temple, and that was the Temple of Nephi. Um, but there are other temples. There are three temples, um, and uh, that's the Temple of Nephi, the Temple of Zarahemla, and the Temple of Bountiful. Two of those existed at the same time. Both Bountiful and Zarahemla existed at the same time. In addition to that, the Book of Mormon talks about sanctuaries. These were altar sanctuaries, as in there was an altar in them. Uh, that, that wasn't a synagogue, that was a sanctuary. So these were small things that were like temples that every person had, as, a, as the Book of Mormon describes it. Nephites and Lamanites had these altar sanctuaries and synagogues as well. Um, in the book, I talk about how uh, there was a dual form of worship in the Book of Mormon, especially where people worshipped at either the temple or sanctuary, and they also worshipped at the synagogue. But they were two different forms of worship. At the temple, it was altar worship with sacrifice and higher ordinances. And in the synagogue, it was mostly instruction which, by the way, sounds quite similar to what we do in Mormonism today. We have the same kind of dual-form worship. I actually do physical therapy with a Catholic woman here in Boston, and she's very curious about this dual-form worship idea that somehow we do temples and, uh, and, uh, and, and congregational worship both at the same time. One of the things that really struck me was that when Joseph Smith began Mormonism in, let's say, 1830 was the formal, was the formal organization. The first thing that he did, um, after starting the church almost, was to articulate a vision of the temple. And he said that there will be a temple and he sent Oliver Cowdery on a mission to Missouri. This is in September of 1830, so this is four or five months after, after the formal organization. And Oliver's going to the Missouri, going to Missouri 
with three others, and, and many people have interpreted this as a mission to the Lamanites. True, but another big reason was to go and find a place to put the temple. Joseph was always focused on temples and never really focused on congregational worship. He never started a ward or never started a congregation per se. He always created temples. I shouldn't say he never created congregations because we did have branches of the church in Colesville and in Manchester and so forth. But still, he was so focused on temples. One of the questions that I asked is, if Joseph knew that he was going to do temples, where did that come from? And I think part of the answer to that is Moroni especially emphasized that in his visions. Um, and the first scripture that Moroni emphasized to him was in Malachi chapter 3, which talks about the Lord suddenly coming to his temple. So I think Joseph was focused on that to begin with. But I also think that Joseph knew that he had to do temples, but he had to ask this question, if I'm going to do a temple, what on earth am I going to do in a temple? I mean, what is a temple going to be like? Because I can't use the Old Testament temple. That's, you know, that's long in history. Sacrifice has been done away. You know, how am I going to do temple worship? And that was really what Joseph, I think, then turned to the Book of Mormon for, to say, how did they use the temple in the Book of Mormon? And I think especially he found in Third Nephi in the Temple of Bountiful, when Jesus came to the Temple of Bountiful, that he saw lots there that would really inform his thinking about temple worship. So, I, Jerry, I find these ideas interesting that there are these connections between the temple and uh, in the Book of Mormon, and they're just they're things I think that the average member just doesn't pick up on as they're reading through the book. They don't really pick up on these subtle ideas that are there that that obviously are are at least having some connection to to things that Joseph is doing within the restoration is there are there any others that are that are out there that particularly have to do with the temple yeah I think that Joseph especially um, came up with this idea in 1831 of endowment endow which he tied to the Lord giving us a great gift an eternal gift of knowledge and so Joseph spent about a decade trying to flesh out what that endowment would be. And part of what he came upon was an idea of progressive worship. That is, that you go from one place or one station to another station to another station, and finally into the presence of God, progressive worship. And that's one of the things that he actually found in Third Nephi especially. Um, you'll see it in there. I talk about it in the book, how... Especially 3rd Nephi chapter 19 is what Andrew Ehat, a scholar in the Book of Mormon, called the Nephite Endowment, and I think he's right. It's something that many people kind of skim over because it's complex and hard to read, but you'll see there, Joseph, I think, was really captured by this. And in fact, the Kirtland Temple had an endowment that was very similar to what the Nephite Endowment was, and then that grew into the Nauvoo Endowment, which appeared in 1842. One of the things that a lot of people think is that the Nauvoo Endowment came by revelation sort of out of the blue. I don't think that's right at all. I think it actually started much earlier than that, and that Joseph finally built up to, the, to that. So there's lots on temples uh, that's just great, including the fact that we have so many temples today. That came from the Book of Mormon, I'm convinced. So I'll leave it at that for now, okay? And, and I want to 
just bring out for a moment you're you've got a section where you talk about the connections within uh, within our priesthood the priesthood that we've developed within the restoration and i and i certainly want you to give us a couple of those dots that you're connecting but i also want to push back a little bit too that that when i first think of the book of mormon influencing the priesthood structure of the church i'm i'm struck as i've read the book of mormon at how simplistic the priesthood is. It, it feels like there are really only two offices being talked about. And, and I don't even think it's two. I actually think it's one, the way it frames it. It's almost like the Book of Mormon teaches that there are teachers and there are priests and that the teachers are not teachers in the way that we use the word in terms of being a priesthood office with priesthood responsibilities. Rather, the teacher is just what that word implies, a, a person who is teaching the gospel and then there's these priests who seem to be the ones who are officiating with the priesthood. And it's a really simple framework or perspective that the Book of Mormon has, a very a very simplistic idea of priesthood. And, and yet what we have in the church is really dynamic. I mean, there's lots of offices, there's tiers of offices, and then within each tier there's there's three or more offices. It's a really, to me, complicated system. If I was a, an investigator to the church, which, which I was, I was a convert as an older teenager and, and it was one of those things that took me probably, you know, two or three months of being at church every Sunday and hearing these offices talked about before I made sense of them. If you could take a moment, certainly connect some of the dots for us, but also maybe just share with me your thoughts on being aware of that distinction as well. So it's really interesting. Um, you're right. There are four offices in the New Testament. I'm not in the New Testament, in the Book of Mormon, I'm sorry. And they are disciple, elder, priest, and teacher, those four only. Um, and, um, and disciple is often conflated with apostle. So those, there were 12 disciples. And there were 12 apostles. Um, there are 12 disciples in the Book of Mormon. So that, that, that is really true. Um, and it's interesting, in the early Restoration, there were four offices in 1829. And they were disciple, elder, priest, and teacher. Those were the only four. And then shortly thereafter, Joseph changed the name disciple to apostle so that they had then those four different offices um, that's obviously an example of how the Book of Mormon influenced Joseph very early on. But you're right, Bill. Joseph wasn't only influenced by the Book of Mormon. I think what I'm trying to say in my book is that we have always assumed that priesthood influences were biblical, that Mormonism was really influenced by biblical things. Joseph restored a biblical religion, and I don't think that's correct. I think it started out as a Book of Mormon restoration. But then it did move to incorporate others. Uh, for example, um, in 1831, Joseph introduced the offices of bishop and deacon. Now, that's very interesting. Remember I said earlier the deacon is mentioned in section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and yet there was no description to go along with what a deacon does. There is for priest and there is for teacher. Joseph knew what priests and teachers did because he had models for those in the Book of Mormon, but there were no models in the Book of Mormon for deacon. So there's nothing mentioned about deacon. And yet, you know, two years after the Book of Mormon was published, he did bring in those offices from the New Testament. Um, 
Then other offices, for example, high priests, um, 70s, elders. Of course, elders do come from the Book of Mormon. And I think elders go back in time to the very beginning, uh, to the early beginnings of religion, uh, to, you know, to elders within the community even. But, uh, but anyway, I think that for Joseph, this idea that, um, priesthood would begin with a, with a, a Book of Mormon priesthood. Oh, there's something that's really very interesting in this. You talked about priest and teacher. Somehow priests do everything. Teachers don't really do much of anything. That's actually not quite correct. Um, both priest and teacher were introduced at exactly the same time in the Book of Mormon, and that was at the founding of the Nephi Temple by Nephi in Second Nephi chapter 5. That was when he set apart Jacob as the first priest, and therefore the chief priest of the temple, I believe. And he set apart Joseph as the first teacher. And Jacob's role was to be, was to officiate at the altar. And Joseph's role was to assist. This, by the way, is a role that is exactly what has been done throughout time in the Old Testament. There were always priests and there were always Levites. But in the Book of Mormon, they're called teachers. That's a great question as to why that is. But anyway, and the Levites always assisted the priests in officiating in the temple. And so it was in Nephite religion that the teachers assisted, assisted the priests. And then as time went on, they did more. Uh, they had other roles as well. For example, the teachers would be responsible for teaching, but always under the, uh, always under the supervision or, or stewardship of the priests because the priests were ordained for governance in religion then at that time, and really through almost all time, priests have been that way. So so the Book of Mormon was, was following a practice. What's really interesting in the Restoration is that when Joseph restored priesthood, he restored the office of priest. Wow, in a Protestant world, that was the wrong thing to do because Protestants especially didn't like Catholicism, they, they thought that popes or that, that priesthood was popish, as Richard Bushman said. But Joseph introduced priests anyway, priests and teachers. And the reason he did that was because those were great Book of Mormon offices. And in fact, priest and teacher continued through the restoration. Uh, they would become usually the leadership or branches of the church. For example, in the Colesville branch in New York, um, Hiram Smith was ordained a priest to preside over that branch. And then uh, I think it was Hezekiah Peck was ordained a teacher to officiate along with uh, Hiram Smith, you know. This kind of model was used and uh, used in the early restoration for probably 30 years or so, maybe 20 years, and then gradually gave way to other models. So I hope that's helpful anyway as a starter. There's much more to talk about there, but anyway... I think it is really good. And I, and I think as you've gone through uh, some of these chapters that we've talked about, I think it's going to be great for the listener to kind of pick up on that there are ways in which to see these things that we've not had our eyes open to before, that that if we just open our ears and open our eyes to what we're listening to and what we're reading, that we might be able to make some connections that we'd never seen before that I find to be quite intriguing I, I want to wrap up with kind of an overall question. You, you've spent time throughout this book 
talking about how the Book of Mormon influenced Joseph Smith and influenced the church's theology and doctrine. But I want to kind of end maybe giving you a chance to talk about how the Book of Mormon's influenced you as well as how you think it's it influenced the early restoration maybe generally um, as well as where we're at today and and kind of give you a moment to to just kind of share the the magnitude of what the Book of Mormon means to the restoration. It's really interesting. There was there was one scholar who wrote this, and I write it in the book. Um, he said the Book of Mormon contributes little to LDS ritual, aside from the wording of the sacrament prayers, even though its narratives are central to the religious experience of its adherents. Um, I actually don't think that's correct at all. And, and so one of the things that I that I discovered as I went through this research was how central the Book of Mormon was um, to Joseph Smith, especially because he was so familiar with it. He trusted it. He knew it. It was something that he could use. But part of the point of what I was doing here, there are many people that have wondered where the Book of Mormon came from. You know, gold plates and all of these miraculous ideas of how it came forth. You know, Von Brody was this really Joseph Smith's incredible imagination and all of that. I said in this book, I said, you know what, set that aside for now. And I want to look at the Book of Mormon, not only for what it teaches, because that's that's valuable, especially to the believers, but especially what were the... What were the institutions in the Book of Mormon? What were the rituals? What were the ways? What were the religious rites? Were those things that could somehow inform a modern religion like Mormonism? And what I found was that, in fact, that was really true. But that then now causes us to ask a different question. So what is or so what were the institutional observances that are documented in the Book of Mormon. Where did they come from? And what is it that made them compelling to the early Mormon people? And then today makes Mormonism stand out as a religion uh, on, on its own right. I do ask the question uh, in the last chapter of the book, and I think it's a good question. Uh, what would happen if there were no Book of Mormon, but there were a restoration? That is, that Joseph Smith did a purely biblical restoration and i think that the answer is i mean you can look at other religions that frankly did that or tried to do that for example the campbellites under alexander campbell restored uh, what they called the church of christ it was a biblical restoration just like joseph wanted to do except it was purely biblical they've now melted into history and there are certainly churches of christ but it's, but it is not, uh, but it doesn't have the same kind of success that, that Joseph's movement had. Um, the Christadelphians. Have you heard of the Christadelphians? Another great, another great biblical restoration, but kind of melted into history, you know? So the Millerites, um, you know, and the, the Seventh-day Adventist movement, they're still here for sure, you know? But I think what happened with the Book of Mormon is that it influenced Joseph to have a restoration that was different with timeless baptism and with sacrament that uh, had a had a nuanced meaning that was slightly different so that other people respected it but said, you know, that's different from what we believe. And yet there's certainly a wonderful provenance. Again, I use that word provenance, which 
really sort of looks at how you go back into history to find out the links that, that, that describe or that enables, enable us to identify how these different practices, where they originated from and how they were transmitted through time to the present day. So, um, to me, it has just been wonderful to see that for Mormons anyway, the provenance of Mormonism certainly is biblical, but it is also from the Book of Mormon. Whereas for Catholics, for example, for many, for all of my good Catholic friends, uh, their provenance is very much based upon, um, the popes and the, uh, and the lineage of popes that begin with Peter and, and continue through time to the present day with Pope Francis. Uh, provenance is very important to them. Mormons have their own provenance. It is revealed, but it is also historical and that history is Especially, I think, the Book of Mormon has influenced it in a very unique and compelling way. I think one other thing that I would, that I would add in here, and that is that one of the questions I wondered about is, what did Joseph Smith think of the Book of Mormon? I mean, if he had produced something that was sort of a, you know, kind of his, as Carol Gibbons said, his pious, a pious deception, you know, if he had done something like that, is there evidence in the research that I've done of any of that kind of thing? And I, of course, find quite the contrary. I think that Joseph immersed himself in the Book of Mormon and loved the Book of Mormon. I think he loved it as a personal text, but he also had to rely on it because it gave him so much from which to build a modern religion from. And then there is the wonderful story, sad story, frankly, of Joseph and Hiram at Carthage Jail on June 26th of 1844. So this is the night before Joseph and Hiram were killed. And um, and this was a, an account written by Dan Jones, who was an eyewitness there that same evening. Dan said, during the evening, the patriarch Hiram read and commented upon copious extracts from the Book of Mormon the imprisonments and the deliverance of the servants of God for the gospel's sake. Joseph bore a powerful testimony to the guards of the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon, the restoration of the gospel and the administration of angels, and that the kingdom of God was again upon the earth, for the sake of which he was at that time incarcerated in that prison. I think it's interesting in that moment when they both knew that this might be, in fact probably would be, their last day on earth. They both turned to the Book of Mormon for stories of solace, for stories of comfort, of deliverance, where the Lord delivered his servants, and I'm sure they expected that the Lord would deliver them, and he didn't. Profoundly, he didn't. But I think that Joseph and Hiram trusted in the Book of Mormon as this great ancient scriptural document that they could go to for even this last and most important moment in their lives. So that is really, to me, that was profound as I considered that and, and really affected me and my feelings about uh, about the Book of Mormon and about Joseph as well. Beautiful, beautiful. You've, I think you've done a great job as we've sat down and kind of talked about some of these ideas that, that again, the listeners, as they read through the Book of Mormon, as they're listening to things being said in church, as they listen to... Or I should say, just even just be aware of how our meetings take place and what's going on with the sacrament or what we're doing within ordinances to, to kind of be open to maybe some new insights. And you've certainly opened my eyes to some of these. Um, we're talking today with Jerry Smith, 
uh, author of Schooling the Prophet, uh, How the Book of Mormon Influenced Joseph Smith in the Early Restoration. Uh, Jerry, tell uh, tell folks where they can get the book at and and uh, certainly put a plug in for those places that are carrying it. So uh, certainly Deseret Book has it. Uh, it's published by the Neil Maxwell uh, Institute um, and uh, is also carried on Amazon. Is distributed by the University of Chicago Press. And so um, I will actually be doing a book signing event on July 9th at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. And if any of your listeners would like to come and join me there, I would love to meet you and love to chat and uh, and answer questions that you might have. So I would say that Amazon is certainly, um, but then most bookstores are selling it now uh, through the uh, University of Chicago Press. And um, so it's certainly, uh, you know, and feel free to get in touch with me with questions you have on it, you know. Absolutely. And if you're okay with it, we'll... I can certainly take your email. We can share it on the episode um, notes so that people, when they go to the website, will be able to contact you and ask you any questions that they might have. Um, also, Jerry, with, uh, you said earlier that uh, one of your children is moving to St. George. If you're ever out this way visiting, would love to, to meet you face-to-face and get a chance to talk with you. Uh, appreciate you being on today and, and grateful for the chance to kind of talk about the Book of Mormon, I think for me anyway, in a new way that – that I had often, as you had pointed out with that quote towards the end, that some scholars and a particular scholar that you quoted have kind of dismissed the Book of Mormon as not being influential in our theology, even though it is influential in our cultural narrative, that that really there is influence there and there are things to pick up on. And, and for me, I've had my eyes open to some new ideas. And I just want to say thank you and, and appreciate so much you taking time out of your day to be on. Thank you, Bill. I've enjoyed it very much and uh, look forward to meeting you in St. George. Awesome. Look forward to it as well. Oh